Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the cradle with your girl Grace. And um, y'all, it's been a busy week. Okay, um, last week was my birthday, so you know I had a turn up time, and, and I know what y'all thinking. No, not that kind of turn up. I was in the club and my booty shaking or anything. I was in my house with my booty shaking though. Okay, <laughs> somebody. Um, I had a good time on my birthday uh, with you know some of my my really good girlfriends and. Um, we are back again with such um, an important and um, timely and heavy topic, but yet so lightly because of the because of who is on it with me. Um, and so today's topic is about how do we navigate um, such a um, intense political atmosphere um, and navigating a divided nation. And I get the privilege of having one of my dearest friends with me. I mean, he's a brat, um, and 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 uh, but he is one of the most brilliant human beings I know, and have had gotten the privilege to um, work with, and um, he is just, um, you know, he's special. And, and and okay, y'all, hold on. When I mean special, I don't mean like sp- like he's special like that to me. You know, I mean special like he is special. You if you know what I mean. I'm not um, used to you being this nice to me. I should come on your podcast all the time. <laughs> Oh, well, hold on. Don't start early. <laughs> now we, we, <laughs> yo, he's already acting up. So let me give a little background about him and then he will kind of go off and, and do his thing, what he does best. Um, so Ali Abazid is a public health and social uh, policy professional who currently lives as, serves as a presidential management fellow with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, where he leads a portfolio that includes ending homelessness, health disparities, social mobility, refuge resettlement, and education. Ali is a Michigan transplant, I know, yep, we went to school <laughs> together, who worked in global um, context in the refugee camps of Lebanon in Detroit during um, the water shutoff crisis and in federal government now in this unique moment. He is a three-time graduate, yes, he is smart, of University of Michigan, Woo-woo. Uh, most recently earning a master's of public health and a master's of public policy in 2017. So you all probably already got kind of a feel, kind of imagine who he could be um, just by what I read. I mean, he is a man who's passionate. So Ali, hello. Welcome. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. Are you really? You don't sound like Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Kind of makes I got this worry. nagging cold, but, you know, we'll get through it. I'm excited to be here with my friend Grace. You clearly have done a lot, Ali. I mean, tell us a little bit about who you are, um, but also like what makes Ali Ali. So I am the fifth oldest or third youngest in a family of uh, seven children, depending on your perspective. My uh, <laughs> my story really begins with the story of my parents who are Syrian refugees by way of Algeria. Um, my father was a professor in Syria who used his platform to engage his students to think critically of living in an authoritarian state. And the government there didn't like that. And so they were forced out of home um, and they lived in Algeria for the next eight years and ultimately settled in the United States where I was the first in my family to be born and raised in uh, Detroit, Michigan. And I spent most of my life in Michigan uh, studying there, um, was on my way to a career in medicine uh, for most of my life. At least that's what I thought I wanted to do. 
Um, but I think at the core of that idea of wanting to help people and wanting to heal people, um, I didn't have the language for it when I was younger, but really at the core of that was uh, a life devoted to public service. And I'm thankful and grateful to have found that path and uh, doing the work that I do now in D.C. Um, it's been it's been a really unbelievable experience serving um, as a public servant um, and coming to public service in a unique era, the unique era of Trump. And so um, while, uh, <laughs> you know, all of these things are happening around us, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's important to keep those roots in, uh, in mind. And so um, that story is really, um, it's, it's charted for me, uh, was charted by the journey my parents took and continues to be charted by the work that I engage in today. So, yeah, okay. So I must say, Ali, you, as, as someone that I've, I've gotten to know personally, and so our audience, the they don't know you like I do, but you mentioned two critical places. I mean, your parents obviously are phenomenal um, individuals for raising you and, and also for your siblings, but you mentioned two key locations, right, that I think uh, play an important part in and who you are, but also in our conversation. You mentioned Michigan. Mm-hmm. What you know when when people resettle into different places, there's always reasons behind it, right? Um, and so, why Michigan? Number one for for the resettlement of your of your family. Um, why are you working in DC? Uh, so my parents settled in Michigan because um, there's a long history to Detroit, sort of the Motor City, um, attracting a lot of folks from the Middle East and North Africa, uh, mainly because mm-hmm. Ford and some of the car manufacturers uh, in Detroit. Um, were such attractive hotspots for immigrants. And so a lot of folks came over from the Middle East. Um, My father's brothers were here. And the way that resettlement works, um, which is a a highly complicated process, um, is a lot of people around the world who are immigrants, who are refugees, who are fleeing their home countries, want to end up in the United States. And so when my parents were in Algeria, they were trying for many years, applying for visas and asylum in the United States. Um, And after eight years, they got accepted. And so um, that process gets a little bit easier when you have family in the place that you're trying to go, which my family had in Michigan. Um, And so we made Dearborn, a city, a suburb right outside of Detroit, home. And that's where we've lived ever since 1986. And that's where we continue to live, right outside of Dearborn. And so... um, uh, you know, that's home for me. It's the only place I've ever known. It's uh, still home today when I think about the work that I engage in in public health and some of the most important crises happening today from a public health perspective. They're happening in Flint. They're happening in Detroit. They're happening in mm-hmm. some of the refugee camps in Lebanon where I've worked. They're happening because of the crisis that started through the civil war in Syria. Um, and so a lot of those things I trace back um, as core to my story and as core to what yeah. I'm doing today day working as a civil servant in the federal government. Um, and so when I think about the work that I engage in, it's it's difficult to partake without thinking about where home is and the inspiration that I get from home. Right, right, right. So because I know that Dearborn is such a special place um, and, and just for the Arab community, but also um, there's just a lot of beautiful people there and, and a lot of beautiful work being done out of that community. I know some of the smartest people I've met have come from that community, from being at the University of Michigan. And I know that 
you explained it so beautifully because a lot of who you are is is very much so tied for that to that place and to your parents um and and then you take yourself and replant yourself in dc in a place that is um to many people, DC, if you if you live and breathe politics and you love the drama of it, this this is perfect. <laughs> but to uh, to to most Americans, mm-hmm. like DC, it is kind of a scary place. It is a place that people feel intimidated by, um, because of the atmosphere, political atmosphere, because of the kind of people that live and breathe there, and also the the complexities of, um, even historically the black community mm-hmm. there, and and how the gentrification and there's so much around dc um as a whole so what it is you know what is it like for you working in dc the you like to call it the, the belly, belly of the beast on issues that are so you know polarizing and political i mean i know you personally because you like being kind of in the look i do like- i do but to, to, to- Absolutely. But to be very honest with you, and Grace, you know this, I wasn't trying to end up in D.C. I was actually very actively uh, pursuing opportunities outside of D.C. Um, upon graduation in 2017, I, you know, this, the year the year before then, thinking about where I wanted to end up, um, this was in the height of the 2016 election. And so we were all listening to the news every single day, the ugly rhetoric, the polarization, the tribalism, the Hillary camp, the, the Trump camp. Um, and, you know, we had just elected Trump in November of 2016. And so I was looking for a job post-graduation in that climate and in that environment. And despite being a, you know, a full-blown political junkie, um, I didn't want to go to D.C. I was interviewing for opportunities elsewhere in Boston. Um, I was on to round four or five of an opportunity in L.A. I was thinking about opportunities in New York. Um, I, I didn't want to mm-hmm. be in D.C. I actually wanted to be away from that for a little bit. My ideal plan was to go work in a progressive haven like california for a couple of years and then come back when i've sort of had my time to beach it out and chill on the you know on, on, the, on the west coast for a little bit but the truth is once i was selected um as a presidential management fellow in January of 2017, my decision was sort of made for me. Um, I knew that it was too good of an opportunity to pass up. It was too good of an mm-hmm. opportunity to be able to serve in the way that I wanted to serve um, because I'm a believer in, in in public institutions. My theory of change is public mm-hmm. institutions. It's, it's, it's federal government. It's government at all levels, state government, local government. I believe that government was built for uh, the common good and the public good. And I think that on the heels of an election where a lot of Americans went to the ballot box and voted against their own interests. Um, a lot of white rural America was going to the ballot box and voting for a person who was trying to undermine and undercut some of the social entitlements that they're receiving every single month. Um, on the heels of all of that happening, I knew that the opportunity was too good and that the decision for me had been made. And so that's why I decided that, you know, this is what I'm going to pursue, um, a career in D.C. Uh, at the beginning of my career, uh, seeking out an opportunity in D.C. And so uh, that's exactly what I did. And uh, this is where we are right now, working in the environment that we are in. The fact that you originally did not want to necessarily end up in D.C., uh, because you you felt like you needed a break from that, or or just just because you just felt like it wasn't time. Um, you know, it it, it it was a 2016 election. I think 2016 was a 
was a really unique time for obvious reasons. Um, and I understand the impetus to want to discuss 2016 and the election of Trump and all the things that happened post that time. Um, but, for, but for a lot of other people, it was far before 2016. Um, it was growing up in the era of, of 9-11 for a lot of Arab Americans. It was growing up in the era of the Iraq War, the Afghanistan uh, invasion. It was growing up in the era of the Arab Spring in 2011. It was growing up in the era mm-hmm. of, you know, a revolution turned civil war in Syria, my home country, um, and the ensuing public health and refugee crisis. Um, and so for a lot of us, 2016 was kind of the, the, the critical point at which America started to rear its ugly head to the rest of America. But for a lot of us, we've seen this before. And for me, I saw mm-hmm. it very vividly and very clearly on not November 8, 2016. It was actually December 7, 2015, when Donald Trump at that point, who was mm-hmm. a candidate for president, um, calling for a complete and total shutdown of all Muslims entering the United States um, that was in that was in response to some of the shootings in California at the time in San Bernardino, I believe, um, where Trump yes. uh, called for a complete and total shutdown of Muslims. And, you know, that was in 2015. And um, people caught wind of that. But that was that moment where I remember sitting in my couch in my apartment in Ann Arbor, Michigan, just hanging out, watching CNN, uh, seeing this person who was a leading candidate for president for the Republican Party talking in this way and me thinking, wow, um, this is this is really happening. This is really being set on live TV in public uh, for all people to hear. Um, and so that was that that was that was a pivotal moment for uh, for me, at least, in, in thinking through what it what it meant to live in this America, what it meant to be a part of this America and how I wanted to be a part of this fabric and a part of the work that needed to be done moving forward. Hmm. You mentioned a few things that I think are very um, poignant and, and, and critical and, and to talk about. And, and you mentioned kind of the era in, in which uh, things began to shift. Um, and I think it's important to talk about some of that history. But also you, you talk about the word part of this America. And I think it's important for us to even tackle, even before we go there, because I have it like circled right here, um, because I I think it's important for you to also at some point, you know, share with folks, what does it mean for you to be an American? Um, what does it mean to be part of uh, this this beautiful country? Uh, but also at the same time, a country that has um, some very intense and hostile history. Um, and so before we get into that, though, I, I, I'm going to come back. I mean, you know, I'm going to come back. That <laughs> um, I think oftentimes the average American is not aware of, we, you know, Know, oftentimes I think we we get into uh, no matter where you stand on the spectrum, whether it is you know a Republican, Democrat, moderate, um, that that oftentimes I find that in my conversation with people we we are missing history, right? And and I know sometimes history is not fully written in 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 its totality. However, it is written um, to, to to what we know it to be at this moment, um, but when people get mad and they get angry at each other or they are yelling across the table or, or they are refusing to listen, I find there's a lot of disparities in knowledge, but also disparity in people's history. 
and an understanding of 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 the world history, but also, which is a complex thing, right? There's no such thing as a world history, but in the sense of American history, uh, that most people don't know the history. And I know I just had a recent conversation with one of my colleagues, you know, who was uh, really talking about those people over there, you know, want to come into our country. And I was like, I'm like, well, what do you mean by those people? And who's coming into your country? I said, aren't you an immigrant too? She said, well, no, I was born here and raised here. And, and of course, this is, this is a white woman. And I said, well, the, everybody's an immigrant except the Native Americans. I said, none of us belong here, technically, right? Mm-hmm. And if, 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 if you want to kind of talk about those people, right? What does that mean by those people, right? Um, and so, and she, came, she said to me, and somebody I love dearly at work, but she said to me, you know, I have a drop of Indian in me. And I thought, and I thought to myself, wow. Um, but in that moment, I realized that my response to her wasn't to go 100%, I heard, and just like, okay, I'm going to take you down. But my response to her was really begin to walk through her thought process. Mm. And at the end of our conversation, I think she, I mean, she didn't have anything to say, but I, you could tell she was impacted at that moment when we talked about her thought process and the history and really her lineage. How did you get to this country? Mm-hmm. Right. And so I know the importance of history. And so this kind of leads to my next question. Right. Um, how did we get to this moment, this, politi- this political moment in time? And what are some of the historical antecedents to ex to explaining this moment in time, right? Because I think history oftentimes is for easily forgotten. And we know in this country, uh, whether it is right now, we've seen the uptick in white supremacy around the country in general, right? We've seen, um, you know, the violence pick up, you know, um, and violence in any form, shape or way is not tolerated and should not be tolerated no matter where it's coming from. But we've seen just really an uptake without it is, you know, the, the synagogues and the churches and the, and the mocks and being, um, really disrupted by hate and, and violence. Um, talk to us a little bit about how did we get here politically, right? But also to, uh, some history to kind of, and give us some sort of foundational um things to to come off oh no uh no large task congress we 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 get straight to it (laughs) you know look i think look there's days where you gotta you gotta laugh through it and then there's days where you just gotta be real with it no absolutely look i think it's um it's a it, it's a fan, it's a fascinating question. I was having dinner a couple of days ago with a couple of friends, and um, they were uh, you know these are friends who are physicians, and they were talking about some of their experiences, um, a couple of their specific experiences in the emergency room dealing with folks who are uh, addicted to different substances and abusing those substances, and how they've been needing the emergency room and their experiences, um, sort of dealing with that and letting them out into the streets, um, and then seeing those same patients come back in two weeks ago. Um, and it was it was a similar thread, not too dissimilar from what we're talking about here, which is what's the solution? Mm-hmm. How do we how do we examine that? And how do we examine that as Americans? And how do we examine that as people that are interested in solutions moving forward? Um, and my response to that, which is similar to my response to your question about how we got here, is this is a country that chooses to examine its past in sanitized tranquility. We don't like to think about what it is that we've actually done and what it is that has happened that has got us to this point. Um, 
this is a country where I think our central conundrum is reckoning with this institution that um, this institution of slavery, which brought people, humans in, in chains 400 years ago to the year um, to the shores of America. Re- reckoning with that history of the institution of slavery with our with our democratic aspirations. And so that's the conundrum at the heart of America's soul, which is how do we think about those things and how do we acknowledge this history and how do we reckon with that history and how do we appreciate that a history where a certain kind of person was pillaged and plundered for so long, um, that there's going to be vestiges to that that exists today. Mm-hmm. That understanding that is the key to understanding America and is the key to spiritual healing moving forward. Because, you know, all these questions that we're having today around reparations and and questions around racial uh, issues and matters around America, it, it, it all goes back to this institution of slavery, which is a core feature of the American story. And so, Whenever we have these conversations about how we got here and and where do we go from here and what are the solutions, I think I, I truly believe that if, if if this country were to grapple with that question honestly and faithfully and be willing to have an honest conversation about the impacts of and the legacies of the institution of slavery, then understanding that there is a large segment of the American population today that traces its roots to that history and that their very, their being today um, is impacted by that history. Uh, that understanding, I, 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 I mean it when I say that that understanding has the power to change the force and the future of America. Um, and so any, any conversations around the history of America have to start with this reckoning of this institution of slavery with our, our democratic aspirations. Had to, I had to go bust into an old spiritual there. You mentioned a few a few words um, that I, I think, you know, just for our audience, you mentioned sensitized trans, trans, tranquility. Sensitized tranquility. Um, that's a that's a phrase Sanitized. that I'm borrowing from uh, Peter Gomez, by the way, who um, wrote the... Oh, um, yes who wrote that in uh, the introduction uh, to the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass. Um, and so he, he he's, he's, he's a masterful writer. And so he used that phrase when talking about the way that America looks back at our history. So if you had to break that down a little bit to our audience, what does, what does that fully mean? At its well, look, there are so many writers and, and, and inspirations. I mean, we can go back to, you know, thinking about gone with the wind and, and the birth of a nation and so much of, 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 of the popular culture. Culture that undergirds this history. Um, you know, pick your author, pick your writer, pick your film, pick your music. There's, there's, there's references to this American history in, in, in basically so much that we experience on a day to day. And so when I think about sanitized tranquility, what that means is we as Americans, we like the 
we like the story of hope. We like the story of unity. Um, and why wouldn't we? Any any human would. You know, Charlie Chaplin back in the day when he used to produce those old black and white films, um, he, uh, he he had a great film in the 40s called The Great Dictator, where he was impersonating Hitler. And in it, he gives one of the most powerful speeches uh, Charlie Chaplin does. And uh, he says that, you know, human beings uh, are like that. They like to live by each other's uh, happiness, not by each other's misery. And so I, I, I understand at a human mm-hmm. level why the stories of hope and why the stories of optimism and why the stories of 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 of, of positivity are really po- are are really powerful for moving a nation forward, um, but that can't come at the expense of honesty. That can't come at the expense of what actually happened and how did we get here. And so I think in so much of what we do as Americans, we choose to look back at history with sort of you know palliative palliatives or painkillers. We like to we like the optimistic story. We don't like the story that's sad. We don't like the story of what slavery actually was. We don't like the story of what some of the lynchings. Actually Actually, were we don't like the story of what the racist pogroms actually were. We don't like the story that America really, truly became a democracy in 1965 when Black people got the right to vote with the Voting Rights Act. We don't like to talk about these things. We like to talk about this this thing that happened a long time ago that doesn't represent us, that isn't a part of who we are anymore. And since it's no longer a part of who we are anymore, let's not talk about that. Let's just keep that. Uh, let's just keep that. You know, swept under the rug. Let's let's talk about a more a more positive story. Let's talk about where we are today and how we can fix things moving forward. And the latter is 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 fine. The latter is okay, but the latter cannot come at the expense of the former. The former being a complete and honest reckoning with this dark history, this history that has never left us, this history that still plagues us to this day, and this history that we have to face uh, onward. Absolutely. You know, and I often like to think that even as you talk and you and I've had this conversation, I mean, we have it quite often when we get the opportunity to chat. But I think also from even from a root cause analysis perspective that oftentimes I think we like to talk about those things like like they are mutually um, exclusive, but they are not right. Like that, that it is important to talk about the former and the latter the you know, simultaneously, I believe, and and I believe it's important to address. It's, it's it's like dealing with, you know, somebody with you know any sort of issue, addiction, or whatever, um, pain, whether it is physical, emotional, like your medical friends were talking about. Like you can honestly come to a, a diagnosis, right? Oftentimes of anything, and unless you go into the root space, and unless you are able to tackle the uncomfortable, the nasty, the dirty um, history. Or or issues that may be surrounding um, why we are here, why somebody is experiencing what they're experiencing. And I think oftentimes, I think there is this conversation about one or the other, right? But but we can't, I think this is kind of where we are now. It's like, well, we want to move forward, but we don't want to go to the past. And folks are like, well, we want to stay in the past. It's like, mm-hmm. well, like... It's like, no, you don't want to stay in the past because then we'll never move forward. But you also don't want to move forward and forget that there is a past that needs to be reckoned with, that needs, um, you know, an uncovering. Um, And I think oftentimes um, we've gotten to a a point where that is, I think, the narrative. Honestly, I think it partially explains our political atmosphere, right? It explains, I think, to some extent, the parties, Uh, maybe not fully, but I think, you know, there is a lot of, I think people are also frustrated 
Even I think on both sides, I've I've heard this on both sides. I mean, correct me, mm-hmm. um, which I know you do all the time, anyways. <laughs> but you know that that there is such a strong narrative around being politically correct. So right, even even if we had to um, go into the nucleus of this conversation and talk about you know that that there is a dark history and let's reckon with it. I think people oftentimes, even from an organizational development perspective and leadership perspective, that oftentimes people are just like, well, I'm kind of scared. Like, and, and, or, or like, even, even on both sides, like, if I say something, it's gonna, it's gonna be the wrong thing to say. Um, you know, and so people, I think sometimes on both sides get paralyzed. Um, because how do you go back into the past? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Right, like without feeling like I'm crippled to it, you know that I'm I'm stuck to right. it. Right, and 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 you, you know the conversation you touch upon a lot of important points there. Um, I think I, th- I think what we do as Americans sometimes is we forget the power that we hold in 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 in, in words and in just words. And you know mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna mm-hmm. refer to my favorite character of all time in any film or book ever, <laughs> Elvis Dumbledore, when he says that words are our most inexhaustible source of magic. They're capable of both inflicting harm and remedying it. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I think the way that we use our words. Um, has a, a a big impact on the ethos of a nation. And so when I think about America, I think that our problem has never been political correctness. Our problem has never been our inability to speak our minds. Uh, it's it's quite the contrary. Americans are, are, are opinionated and uh, because of our constitutionally guaranteed freedoms, uh, their ability to express it has been well documented. And so our, our, our problem isn't political correctness. And so when, when, when people coming out of the woodworks today um, are complaining about political correctness. It's 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 the kind of person that we should be wary of, and that person is the person who espouses white supremacist um, uh, ideals. Is the person who espouses uh, anti-Semitic ideals. The person who's misogynistic, who's sexist, who's homophobic, who's Islamophobic, who's transphobic. It's it's that person who is usually the first to complain about the fact that things are so politically correct today. Um, we need to do a better job of of sidelining those voices and recognizing the criticisms for what they are. When folks come out complaining that things are too PC or, oh, I wish we can go back to the old days, we we, we need to hear that correctly. We need to hear that for what, what's being said. And what's being said is we'd like to go back to a time where we can speak our minds freely and we could speak our bigotry freely and we could put down others freely and we could continue on with little accountability freely. And I think that this mm-hmm. this, this moment in time is, is, is so special. And I don't say that dismissing the perils of the time. It's, it, it's so special because people will look back and realize that, you know, this era, the 2014, the 20, 2008 election, the 2016 election, this, this era of time, no matter how long or short you want to define it by, um, will be looked back at the same way we look at the 60s and the 50s and the 40s. Um, which mm-hmm. is to say that we'll mm-hmm. look back at these as transformational years that changed the fabric and the bedrock of America. And that's exactly what's going to happen. We'll look back and realize that um, this moment needed to happen, where America needed to confront itself and America needed to tell itself that we are Donald Trump, that we this is not an anomaly, this is not an exception. And that also, this is not the root of the problem. This is just a symptom of a much larger problem that we have chosen 
consciously to suppress for so many years. And so when we look at this moment and 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 what's happening, I I I, I, I'm, I, I have a lot of angst at the consequences, um, a lot of which are directed towards people who look, uh, who look unlike the president, who are black people, who are brown people, who are Muslims, who are folks worshiping in, in mosques and temples and in churches. And so you mentioned briefly at the opening um, some of the uh, crises that have happened, both uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh and in New Zealand, and you know this weekend in California. Um, what the President of the United States is our national emblem. We elected him. He represents America. He represents all of America, not just the you know however many million folks voted for him. He represents all of America. And when this president espouses ideals like you know a complete and total shutdown on all Muslims entering the country, or there are good people on both sides, as he said in response to Charlottesville, what what, what he's doing is he's giving a voice to the darkest. Uh, segments of the population, and usually those are the same people that are asking for political correctness, who are asking for a shift mm-hmm. back in time. And what we're doing is we're exporting our version of white nationalism, our version of white supremacy. And there's nothing more dangerous than that. But naming that and defining that is half the battle. And I'm and I'm and I'm hopeful that this moment will be looked back at as the start of something, not the end of something. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you touched on a few different things. And I think some of the, I believe some of the conversation that I've had, right? Um, because you know, I like to have conversations with all kinds of people. And I think. <laughs> oh, I know that. Well. So, I know that. Oh, hello, somebody. Oh, okay. You, you mentioned about in the life and death. And so even in the Bible, the word will say this, it said there is life and death in, in the tongue. Mm. So the things that we say is li- that we can speak life um, into, into situations that we can speak um, darkness into situations that from the biblical context that we do have power to be able to speak life and to speak light um, and to speak um, things that, are, that they may seem dim, you know, that, that we can bring life to it. That even the ways, the ways that we choose to curse somebody, the, the ways that we choose to bless somebody, mm-hmm. the way that we, we choose to come alongside people that, that we do have those powers that come out of our mouth. And once those things come out, it is sometimes hard to take them back, right? Because it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, I said I to people at the time, I said, you know, and I, and I believe this strongly. And, and, and I, and you guys, I think it's important for you guys to know there's moments where Ali and I are like, when it comes to justice stuff, like we come pretty much. So we, you know, believe in a lot of some of the same, same things, but sometimes I disagree with him about some turning things. So we're not here to be fluffy, y'all. And I know y'all, y'all want me to be fluffy, but what I will say to this is that I agree hundred percent that, you know, I know sometimes when I watch the president speak, I mean, I'll tell myself enough, but you know, when I watch the president speak, you know, I've realized that, and I've asked friends who said, you know, I voted for him. Um, and, and sometimes y'all, it wasn't, it wasn't white people, it was black people, uh, it was Asian people, um, you know, and, and so I've come to the place of, okay, well, you know, let's, let's talk about this. And so I've, I've tried not to demonize people 
um, and, and, and not demonize them in a sense of why, because these are people that I know personally, right? Ali, I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know any, but of people who didn't vote for the, for, for your choice, but also for the choice that they, you know, they felt like it was the right choice for them. Um, whether it was for, you know, economic reasons or whatever reasons they voted, um, voted for, you know, him. And I think, you know, in, even in conversations where I know it, it seems so polarized and people are just going head to head, I have to sit down. I know this and just from a, a very, you know, social work perspective and, and, and a psychological perspective that that is important for me to also sit down and understand people's thinking and stories. And I like to say it doesn't take away from what's happening, but... And I imagine what would it be to truly meet with people who don't agree with me mm-hmm. and be able to have those really, I mean, they might not have at least the reality is your, your level of knowledge about the histories and the intricacy of policy and politics that the average American would not carry that. Am I correct? <laughs> yes. Nod your head. Let's not. Hello, somebody. But that's just the truth. But so, so how do you sit down and have a conversation, right, with somebody? They'll say to you, "I don't hate anybody." Yeah. Like I don't hate yeah. anybody. I, mm-hmm. I really don't. I just don't. Like I don't hate anybody. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is what they have chosen to do, right? Is vote because they had their own reasons for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a it's 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 a great question. I think it's a dilemma, and I think a lot of folks. I mean, this is what people are paid for on on all the networks and all the pundits who are commentating and editorializing on their opinions mm-hmm. about 2020 and you know the 20, 2016 and Ooh. you know the voters in Ohio right and in yourself. Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and how Trump and the Democrats try to appeal to them and. You know, this 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 goes back to um, this goes back to the fact that you know I'm a public health person first and foremost. I know you are too. Of course. Um, and yes, you know, yes, what yes. is public health? Public health is what we do as a society, what we do collectively as a society to ensure the conditions for Absolutely. people to lead healthy lives. And I kind of add a wrinkle yes. into that definition. I add healthy and dignified lives. Um, and so, uh-huh. when I think about public That's health good. and I think about government, I that that was also a core to my decision to join the government to get started with my fellowship and uh, my full-time work in the federal government and so when I think about that work and I think about those silos of public health and government both public health and government suffer from a marketing problem um, and that marketing problem is <laughs> that when public health works well people don't know it that's the whole point of public health when public health is working well the yeah, water yeah, that's yeah, coming the water that's coming through your faucets is clean um, when public health works well the air that you're breathing is pure when public health Absolutely. works well folks are vaccinated measles are isn't spreading the flu isn't spreading as rapidly as it should um, other diseases aren't spreading because there's public health measures in place with sanitation um, and wellness and overall well-being and that's what public health is tasked with public health is tasked with keeping the public healthy without the public knowing. And so naturally, when public health does that, it suffers from its own success. Governments op- governments built the same exact way. When government works well, 
people don't know that it's government that's doing that to them. You know, Grace, 95% of Americans have utilized 21 of the most popular social entitlements. Entitlements is basically just another term for mm. um, government's resources and government handing out resources yes. to its people. And so that's 95% yeah. of Americans. And so that's a huge number. And the face mm-hmm. of that 95% isn't actually what a lot of people perceive it to be. You know, I think that's a significant, a significant number, number. And I think way. post, um, you know, Ronald Reagan era, when I think we've started yes, this sort yes, of rightward yes, yes. conservative shift as a country because of some of the things that Ronald Reagan, uh, Ronald Reagan said, um, sometimes the perception of the face, the person receiving government welfare, the person receiving government social services, that face is usually a brown person, a black person, uh, an immigrant, someone who's coming from another place and draining the system and taking our jobs. Uh, it's actually quite the contrary. The The share of income that goes from uh, the government to people around the nation is, is, is growing in red states larger than it is in blue states. Um, its peak uh, level uh, is in counties with overwhelmingly large white and rural populations, not overwhelmingly black and urban populations. And so when we think about these things, when we think about the way that public health suffers from its own success, when we think about the way that government suffers from its own success, I think the conversation that we need to be having with folks isn't so much what do you mm-hmm. know and what do I know and how, how, how many policies can you tell? And, 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 and no one go. gives a damn about the statistic that I just gave, about 95%. I mean, that's, that's, that's way too complicated. No one wants to hear that crap. People want to hear basic, simple language. People want to hear, what is government doing for me today? And I think that that's one of the biggest pitfalls that we've fallen into, um, we being people that are interested in social movements and social change moving forward in a more progressive future, perhaps. Um, the, the trap that we've fallen into is that this is the way it should be, is the conservative way, the Republican playbook. The Republican playbook that calls for limited government, that calls for uh, a, 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 a smaller social, uh, social safety net that doesn't take care of the children and the elderly as well as a, a, a government that is supposed to and tasked with doing those things uh, does. And so when we when we talk about these things, what we really should be talking about is what is government doing? How is government built and operated to function? Um, and is it doing what it's supposed to be doing in terms of uh, reaching social impact and scaling social impact for the public good? Have mercy. Have mercy on all of us. <laughs> um, you know... <laughs> I gotta take it back to church, y'all. I have to also mention this to you, which which you and I talked about. My audience is people who are, I like to think it's actually more complex sometimes when it comes to the political parties. You know, like I know African immigrants who are um, Democrat on some things and Republican Mm -hmm, on some things, mm -hmm. right? I think there are moments of, you know, spaces where people are saying, there are some things that I'm very, um, you know, left wing on and some things that I'm very right wing on. And I know people oftentimes are going to be able to say, well, you're trying to make me choose a side. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some sense, I think it's like literally, I think it's going to be impossible. Number one, which it seems like this country is doing, like people are just like going 
boom, 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 like one side or the other. And and I'm not saying that people should not do what they feel like they want to do. At the end of the day, we have to be held for our own you know, actions and accountabilities and decisions and beliefs and things that we choose to uphold um, because you do have to uphold that, right? And you have to walk in it. And I think, like you said, Public health at the, at, the, at the core of it is we do want to make sure that people are living healthy lives and living it um, fulfillingly and, and and living it vibrantly and making sure that they have everything they need, in my opinion, to also fulfill their destinies and purposes. And so I said people or nation or anybody that is not that does not have the full capability um, to function well will not fulfill their full calling in life. And I know that you know for for people who are listening y'all i mean we've talked about this multiple times on the show that um that for me everything goes back number one to the heart everything uh, goes back to again purpose it goes back to am i living my best life meaning am i living fully who i'm called to live live out to be in truth as well i think that's important right i'm talking i'm like i gotta ask you these questions (laughs) i know you got some and i know you got some and so People, so there's this whole thing about people want to live in this utopia kind of world, right? Like, like everything is going to be dandy. Like we are all going to get along. I think from both sides that everything is going to be, you know, rosy. Is is there such thing as an utopia world on this on on this earth? I mean, in the sense of in terms of so you know this political atmosphere and, and and the kind of space that we are living in. I mean, look, I'll I'll say this. I uh, identify with a um, a more uh, left version of 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 our politics, um, even more so than the Democratic Party represents. Just because the Democratic Party doesn't really represent me. Um, and I think that that's pretty relevant to who I am. I think that what's mm-hmm. what's more important mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. necessarily the label that I choose, or in this case, don't choose to identify with. It's 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 more so what are the ideas and who's at the center mm-hmm. of the ideas that I espouse. Um, you know, I live in Washington D.C. Right. and I um, one of my portfolios in in in, in uh, D.C. here uh, with yeah. the federal government is ending homelessness. Um, and it's one of those it's it's one of those labels or titles or portfolio titles that I uh, I'm not crazy about um, because ending homelessness is, is is a task in and of itself, but it, it, it's helpful for the it's it's helpful for understanding the magnitude of the of of, of the project is 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 what I'm telling myself. And DC mm-hmm. has one of the largest homeless populations in the entire country, and so. You know, when yes. I'm going into work every day, I'm laying witness to uh, folks that are living on the streets and folks that are, mm-hmm. you know, just a a, a uh, corner away from some of the federal buildings that I'm entering and embarking yeah. on the project yeah. that's tasked with ending that circumstance from being a thing. And so, you know, I can I, I can look at that one way, and that could be colored by the fact that I may identify with a certain kind of politics, but I don't think that someone else who identifies with a different kind of politics is going to look at that situation much differently. I think the way that we think about solutions might be a little different. The way that we think about the root causes might be a little different. And those aren't insignificant. And so... And on one level, I I think it's completely irrelevant how we decide to label ourselves and how it is we decide to move forward um, with that in mind. Yeah. On the other end, though, I think it's completely significant that we think about where we are 
from a political party perspective and how that political party operation has gotten us here. And so these are honest conversations that go back to harking on how do we reckon with our history and how do we reckon with our past? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I may be someone who identifies more uh, with one party than the other. Um, Having said that, though, what are the solutions? that either party is, is is posing and has one party Absolutely. done more to erode the trust uh, in those institutions that I hold so dear and important for public progress um, than the other? And if so, how do we hold that accountable and how do we address that Absolutely. so that we can move forward with a uh, proper Absolutely. playbook? Absolutely. And I think, you see, Ali, I have to navigate you sometimes Thank God you just got on my question and you just, this is why I love to hear him talk sometimes, y'all. I mean, sometimes, you know, if anybody can bring a lead down, I can do it. Okay. I can lift him up in a minute and just bring him right back down. Oh, our cohort of uh, policy and health, public health students know that far too well. It is the love language we have for each other. <laughs> it is our love language for each other, and it works out perfectly. But I love what you said, Ali. Honestly, I love it because you and I, um, you know, have some very, I mean, hist- I mean, sense of background as immigrants that we have some very similar, like, parents and, and what it looks like to live in this country. I think we've had some very real experiences. And, and I think that has not diminished from anybody else who was born here, right, or um, who comes from a rural community or an urban community or, or, or suburbia. At the end of the day, what is the solution, right? Like, there are, there's not just one solution to, I would say, to a problem. And there might be a better, uh, best fit solutions. But the, at the end of the day, for you guys listening to us, have you thought about those solutions? Have you sat down and reckoned with some of the past of this country? But also, um, I think oftentimes when it comes to things like this, it's hard to honestly relate or associate with the history of people. Um, especially if, if, if you've not been around them or, or, or you've not um, been in that community of people. However, I do believe, you know, it is important to try to understand or come alongside um, and empathize. I think that is important, but also to figure out, I might think about solutions. I might just sit in my room or whatever, my workspaces or my friends and just get mad on social media. And I think social media is, okay, Ali might disagree with me on this one. I do think it's, it's an important tool in, in, in a sense of activism and, and different things, but I also think it also can be a negative platform. We've seen it even from a health perspective wise. My question to you guys is, have you thought about some of those solutions? Are you holding your leaders accountable? Um, whether it is even in your jobs, whether it is in your places of worship, are you holding your leaders accountable for, for the things that they are choosing to say and things that you uh, believe in? I think that that's very important to think about um, and not just kind of going about our daily lives and just living just to live. And Ali, let me come back to this, y'all. I could be talking to him all day. Social media. I know you are not black and white on some of this stuff when it comes to social media, but the last time we talked about it, I don't know what you said to me, but you said something that I was like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but <laughs> what are your thoughts on social media, Ali? I mean, look, it's been a fantastic tool, but we also know research-wise that people are less engaged with each other. 
in a mm-hmm. sense of actually being able to talk to each other and have those kind of emotional connections. We, we've known, we've seen things like suicide rates increase, bullying and all this stuff really incre- increase to social media. But we've also, also seen it in its positive sense, reconnecting people. What is your take on that and, and how that's kind of playing into the conversation right now and kind of our uh, political state in navigating the divided nation. Look, I think the way that we talk about social media in, in this country, maybe in a glo- as a global society, um, is a, is a little misguided. I. Uh, these these, these technologies it. aren't inherently good or bad. Um, these the, these technologies are built by people and people who are developing algorithms based on their own human biases and um, all of that sort of trickles into the the thing. And so, social media isn't this monolith. It, it isn't just one thing. It's this diverse array of, of things um, that come of together course. and and some and sometimes presents the worst of society and many times presents the absolute best of society um and so i think Mm -hmm. what's what's important to note about social media is that social media is just a byproduct of human creation and so naturally what would what what will make sense um to happen is that social media reflects this very society in which it lives in and so um the context that i want to apply to this is you know for an american society an american society that's growing ever more uh, unequal as the days pass that's growing ever more polarized and tribal um as the days pass um that that sort of is that sort of experience is mirrored in our social media and so when we think about twitter and we think about the role that twitter has in our political discourse um it's 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 completely fair game for folks to be utilizing uh social media to mm-hmm. advance their agendas i mean that's you know protected oh. by free speech and so um i don't have a problem with people using social media so long as it's intended uh so long as it's not really harming people in an immediate visceral sense now, when you have the leader of the free world espousing and supporting rhetoric that's a that's that's more reminiscent of an ugly, uh, you know, group of people, white supremacists, yeah. white nationalists specifically, yeah. um, then there are problems there that we need to sort of be having very important conversations around. Um, but I don't really, I don't, I, I don't align mm-hmm. with this good or bad. I, 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 I do think that social media is as unequal as the rest of our society. I do think that certain voices are privileged over others. I do. Think think that you know sometimes it's a good thing when it's people that should have important voices and sometimes it's a bad thing when those people are espousing values that we don't align with um but I do think it's important to note that social media is just a mirror reflection of who we are as a society. Um, and so the question around what we should be doing with social media, I think, should be a little bit retooled, should be reframed, uh, and should be brought back to civil society. What are we doing as a society for people? And how do we ensure that mm-hmm. society, civil society, um, how do we ensure that that's a hospitable, safe, inclusive, equitable um, place for all people? And then I think the social media questions will sort of figure themselves out from there. Of course, it's only a byproduct, right, of of really the volcano that's getting rid that that's been erupting. I think, you know, I think at the end of the day, I always say, even I guess pre Obama, historically, that this country has been there's already been a volcano. Right. Um, obviously, Trump's era has allowed for that volcano to explode in, in ways that we've never seen it. But I think just, well, 
I guess that's debatable, right? Even if you look back into our history, um, in days of lynching and, and you know, outwardly um, wanting to kill somebody, you could do it. We've had a pretty intensive history or in this country. And But my, my whole point is that people, people are being triggered, but I think people have always been triggered, right? I think people have always had issues. I think it, it's it's not just a, a cosm of just this once one time thing but i think you and i both know that this is a lo- this is long coming um this is long coming and i think people are, people are just being exposed now i think but the nation is being uncovered in its nakedness and i think it's it's a very interesting space to be in and i know ali you know you are still a hippie <laughs> after all <laughs> Will always, um, at least from my perspective, right, as somebody who does hold multiple identities, uh, as an immigrant, as a black woman, as a as, as a mm-hmm. woman of fate, um, that those things all do combine with me. Like I never see God as one thing. I see Him as righteous. I see Him as mm-hmm. justice, mm-hmm. and so I think He is both righteousness and justice. And so I think. Um, you guys are going to hear a baby crying. I do have guests in my house, y'all. Um, and so if you hear this little cute baby crying, that, that's my little adopted niece uh, in my house. But that it's important um, that, that we do love and we care for the broken. And I know for me, that's that's what breaks my heart. That's what breaks my heart. Um, and, and I know that when people are hurting, I hurt. And I, and I know it's... it's um, no matter where you stand, like people's pain should hurt us, right? Uh, people's, people's, uh, um, you know, Brene Brown said it beautifully. Uh, Ali, I'm sure you've probably followed her work. I don't know if you followed her work. Um, and I love her work because she she said one of the outcome of studying of uh, vulnerability um, and shame is really people who tend to be uh, more vulnerable tend to be more courageous. I thought that was so powerful. And I thought that was really powerful, that vulnerability in its pure sense, right? Like the ability to bring us into a place of courageousness and and, into a place of even though something might be be tough and, and reckoning with the past might be difficult and reckoning with each other sometimes might be difficult, that we do have to be courageous enough to be in some of the same rooms and some of the same spaces or maybe even different spaces. Um, and, and meat, so I think it is quite critical. I know we're coming to an hour, Don. I know, I know. We're coming to an hour here. But from your mm-hmm. perspective, where do we go from here? Where do we begin to think about healing? Yeah, I think that... Um... I think that it's it's you know Grace I'm 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 in the federal government obviously and um I'm in the federal government in the era of Trump and so naturally what that means is I I work day to day with a lot of Republican political appointees um as as you know as a member of the executive branch um I um you know, I'm walking the same hallways and going to the same offices, and these are folks who have been appointed mm-hmm. by a Republican president, um, this particular Republican president. Um, and you know, I'm I'm sure folks have a lot of different experiences that maybe don't mirror mine, but I get along with these people and we respect each other and we like each other. Um, and I'm sure mm-hmm. we just. Dis- I'm sorry. 
Yeah, and and, and I'm, I'm sure we disagree on a lot of things that we're not able to talk to talk about on a day-to-day basis. And you know that maybe that's the point um, in our roles, at least. Maybe that's the point. But you know, when 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 you know, I go to work, and uh, at the at the risk of you know divulging uh, too many details here, when when thinking about ways to improve the conditions of certain Americans living in certain parts of the country that are economically impoverished, um, I didn't think to myself right off the bat, you know, what 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 do I, Ali Abazid, who is you know in the infancy of his career, even though that infancy is one that's affording him these opportunities to think about social impact across the entire country. Um, I think about that uh, not with a, a lens of what 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 do I um, want to see happen. It's what can we do best for those people within the confines of the current landscape of you know your title of how do we navigate this divided nation and how do we do what we can for the people who need it most and. And so when I think about yeah. the solutions, I'm thinking about having to work with the other side, having to think about the things that the other side is going to be thinking about. Um, and we've been wildly successful on a lot of initiatives. And I got to tell you, I've never once, even in this moment, even though I'm not a employee of the Trump administration, I'm a federal employee who works only for the American people. I've never once felt like I've been sacrificing my values um, on any projects that I've worked under. And I started and am currently still in the era of Trump. And so sometimes it does... Um, it does necessitate putting an ego to the side. It does necessitate thinking about the people and thinking about the quiet work that needs to be done, not the loud work that's going to get the attention, not the work that's going to be marketable, not the work that's going to be uh, available on social media. It's the work, the quiet work that needs to be done to help those who need it, uh, who need the federal government to be thinking about their interests. And, you know, we've had we've had a ball of a time. We've been getting work done. Um, and so there is hope even in these divided times. Absolutely. See, this is this is this is where it's it, it's all like right. This is where everything starts to kind of I think merge so beautifully. Ali just beautifully I think kind of wrote the last line of um, this conversation is that in our workplaces, in our um, different facets that we have power or, or, or privilege to do something. Um, are you utilizing that platform? Um, and, and I know recently, even for me, that we are, my um, firm that we are, you know, I was just recently asked to lead a um, initiative around how do we support different populations as a corporate organization in, in Atlanta. And of course, it really immediately, I mean, of course, I had a list from homelessness to refugees and how do we um, continue to be and, and use corporate money to do so, to, to do so some of this work. And so I know we have more power than we think. Well, I don't know if we got to go as far as corporate money, but you know, we'll, 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 we'll take that and run with it. <laughs> I'm saying like, look, if they want to use it. You know, I have to zing you with that one. I know. But look, from my, from my vantage point. Absolutely. This has been a powerful um, time, an awesome time that I have gotten to share this platform with one of um, my dearest friends, but also somebody that I, I respect dearly, somebody that sometimes I disagree with, 
about things, but at the core of it, you know, we both have a passion and a love uh, for public health, for people, uh, for really wanting to develop real solutions uh, around real problems in our nation. And so my question goes back to you guys. What are you doing about this current nation um, as it stands? You know, from your vantage point, what resources are you planning on using? What support system are you going to utilize? What people groups are you going to sit with? Uh, and I believe, it, you know, this is a place of faith that God has given us. Christ has given us um, the power to be able to be stewards of this earth. And, and to be stewards of the things that he's given us, our talents, our gifts. And we can either be steward of love, um, we can be either, either be steward of truth and a place of uh, refuge, or we can be stewards of, of hate and volatile um, language and, and things that does not benefit us, the, you know, or, or, or the people around us. The point is not to agree. On everything, the point is not come to a place of agreement, but the point is to come to a place, believe um, true love uh, for each other. Um, we might not fully understand each other. We live in those days where I don't fully understand uh, my neighbor, but I am required to love my neighbor. That's the, what the word says. And so, guys, I thank you. I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining our dear friend uh, with me, my dear friend Ali. And, and you will be, I'll be putting his information, how you can get a hold of him. If you want to reach out, just ask questions or talk to him. He is a busy man, but I'm sure he would love to answer any of your questions that you might potentially have. And so y'all, you know your girl, this is the, the cradle. Um, it's a place where the spirit of the Lord lives in you and me. And you do have the authority, y'all, um, to do something. And to step up and to live our fullest lives. And so let's do that. And let's be agents of change. Okay, y'all. Love you. Love y'all. I'm going to see you again. Bye, y'all. The Cradle is edited and produced by Chi Yang and Jasmine Jones. The music was created and produced by Gordon Keith. You can also find his music on iTunes and Facebook.